Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book 4.5 of The Dark Tower, The Wind Through the Keyhole, The Skin Man, Part 1. Let's start the show! In this section, Roland tells a story of how, after returning from Magus, he and Jamie DeCurry are sent to Deberia to deal with a skin man terrorizing the town. The skin man is a type of shape changer who is slaughtering people. After the train they are taking to Deberia breaks down, they pass through Serenity, a community of women, and hear a first-hand account of a skin man attack. In Deberia, they work with a local sheriff, Hugh Peavy, who tells a story of Roland's father, Stephen DeShane, to determine who the skin man might be. They deduce it might be a salt miner, but before they can investigate further, the skin man attacks again. The only survivor is a young boy that Roland befriends and hypnotizes to learn some key information. The chapter ends with Roland preparing to tell yet another story. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. As you might have figured out from my recap, there's a lot of storytelling in this section of The Wind Through the Keyhole. We've got multiple characters telling multiple stories, and this itself is a story within a story. So we've noted in our previous episode how this is book 4.5 of The Dark Tower and how this is really a full story that fits in within the broader confines of The Dark Tower story arc. And Mm -hmm. here, after Roland and the Cotet sit down and are sitting by the fire, Roland starts to tell a story within that story. And then within this story of The Skin Man, part one, we get a number of other stories taken. And it seems to me that storytelling is going to be a major theme or device that is used in this book by Stephen King. Yes, I think we definitely picked up on the beginnings of that trend in the beginning of this book. And now that we've gotten this far into it, it's definitely a device that King is going to rely on. And this isn't the first time he's done something like this. Even in book one, first we get Roland telling the story to Brown. And then within that story, we get Allie's story about the Man in Black's visit to Tull. And so this is a a technique that King has employed in the past. But I think this is him taking it to another level because we're just, the Russian nesting doll nature of this just keeps going down and down and down. And it's much more explicit, whereas those stories were attempts for characters to tell something that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. There's that in this case as well, but they're also told in more of a story-like fashion. Yes. In each one of these, it's almost like once upon a time, the Hugh Peavy story that he tells about Stephen DeShane is is very explicit. Hey, let me tell you a story about your father. Have you ever heard this one? Do you know why he was here? Do you know what this bullet means? Well, take a minute and, and, and... Roland, who's normally 
let's get to the point is like, you know what? I really want to hear this story about my father. So it's a lot more explicit in that sense. Yeah, they're very much presented as stories rather than memories or just information to catch you up to the present. Definitely not just info dumps here. There's a a way of telling the story that's important. And it starts out even in the very first pages of this section, we get a hint as to who the types of people who tell stories are. So Roland, who has just come back to Gilead after his adventures in Magus, he's killed his mother, and he's called by his father up to his father's office to be sent on a mission. When he does that, he talks about how he goes up this winding stairs to this office that's surrounded by books, none of which have been read. And there's this indication that Stephen Deshane is a man who does not have time for stories. Later on in that interview with Stephen, the father asks Roland, why are you still taking care of court? Why are you nursing him? And Stephen is doing it in some ways to assuage his guilt over killing his mother, but he's also there telling stories to court. That's one of the things he's doing is telling stories. And so we see here, at least, the young Roland, unlike his father, is one who is fond of telling stories and sees it as important. Right. And that lets us know that Roland as a character and as a person has always been connected to stories in in some way. He finds them useful as a tool, and he also enjoys hearing them and taking part in the stories. Right. The mission that Stephen Deshane is going to send Roland on is to take his friend Jamie DeCurry and to, to go to the barrier to hunt down the skin man. Roland does not know what a skin man is. And so Stephen says, you need to talk to Vinay. Vinay's been collecting stories about this. He'll tell you. There's old tales about it, but he's got current reports. The assumption is it's just some guy wearing bear skins or some other animal skins and killing people. They soon learn that there's more to it than that. When Roland and Jamie get to Serenity, they are told a story by the women who are there about an attack that happened in that community before the skin man was scared off. What's interesting about the Serenity story is right at the end, the woman says, after you deal with the skin man, why don't you come back here? I have something to tell you about your mother because because Roland's mother had actually spent time in Serenity. The carrot for Roland in solving- yeah, There's a promise of, a mo- of further stories. Right? Further stories about his mother who he wants to hear about. Even though he has not told these ladies that he is Gabrielle's son, they can see it in his face and say, hey, we've got a story to tell you. The woman that, that you're talking about, her name is Everlyn. And I think that's such an awesome name. It's one of the, I don't know, one of the coolest names that we've come across. There are a lot of really interesting names in the Dark Tower series, but this one just kind of really stood out to me as a unique name. I don't know if it's a real name that people have in, uh, I didn't look into it, but I, yeah, it didn't sound familiar. Like I think my spell checker can recognize Everlyn, but I, I like it a lot. Yes. And she talks about stories in and of themselves when she acknowledges the stories that men tell about, quote unquote, the women. In a large part, talking about the women that live with her in this sort of cloistered outside of town area of serenity. She acknowledges the fact that there are rumors about them, most of which are probably just completely far-fetched nonsense. And it just made me wonder though, like, does this cloister of women get its reputation because of things like the Little Sisters of Aluria story, 
I won't go into details there. I don't want to spoil that for anybody who hasn't read that story. But I think that there might be enough there in maybe the general awareness in society or or in culture to say, well, at any time a group of women segregates themselves from the rest of society and just spends time together, maybe there's something sinister or something dangerous about that. And that's why these rumors of they eat their men's, you know, start to crop up. And that's, and Roland and, and uh, Jamie get that before they even reach their destination. The train goes off the tracks. They need to go on their own and the rest of the way. The engineers on the train are like, don't go into that town. They eat their men's, you know? And so these guys who make this trip back and forth all the time are terrified of the, the women in this cloister. And I think that, or I suspect that Evelyn and the women who live with her, they probably love having these rumors circulate. It probably keeps them safe and keeps people from messing with them. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a great defense mechanism that they can just let that linger out there and know that there's not going to be a group full of men coming in to rape and pillage. To get eaten. Because they might get eaten. Right. There's more stories than just the ones we've talked about. There is the story of Gabrielle's death that's being circulated in Gilead that I thought was important as well. So she's obviously been shot and killed by Roland, but that's not something that Stephen probably wants to get out in town. Right. He's considered the big leader of the gunslingers, and it's probably not a good sign to have your son accused of killing his mother. They've told a story about it, and that story is that Susan has committed suicide. But again, committing suicide is not something that's necessarily given a lot of value in society. So they, they tell a yet another story, which is the story that she's possessed by a demon. Right. And that seems to be just a euphemism for, for suicide. And everyone knows that, but it, at least it's a better way of saying it. So rather than, oh, she was crazy or hysterical or you know, off her deep end, it's, oh, she was possessed by a demon and that's what happened to her. Right. And it gives the, what are we calling the uh, the upper class of society that, that the Shane family belongs to, it gives them a, a clean way of expressing to the rest of the, the society that Gabrielle has died. The circumstances aren't important. And let's just mourn her as a, as a member of high society, as a member of the leadership of the community. And in fact, when we begin the book, Everybody is wearing symbols of mourning. They're wearing like black armbands or black collars to signify that everybody is sad that she has died. And I don't know that anybody would be mourning her death if the truth were known. No. That, that she was uh, conspiring with Martin Broadcloak, that she you know, was going to steal the wizard's glass that, and all that, that she was going- Murder to- her husband. Right. So all of that needed to be covered up. And I think it is covered up perfectly by just saying she killed herself or in the euphemism of Gilead, she was possessed by a demon. And the assumption is, is that everyone sort of knows what's going on. I mean, it was a widely known secret, it seemed, that Martin and Gabrielle were having this affair. Um, And this is just sort of a way of sweeping it all under the rug and keeping a clean veneer over the Deshane family for the time being. And we'll do this and we'll pretend that the story is true and live by the story. And after she's in the tomb for six months, we'll move on with our lives. But when you say widely known secret, it may be in the uh, upper 
echelon of society, yes, but the rest of the community, the rest of the town, their city-state of Gilead, they didn't know that she was hanging out with Martin Broadcloak. And while we're on the topic of stories, it comes up in a few different ways throughout this section of the book about the value of stories themselves. There, there's a line, stories take a person away, if they're good ones, that is. Another line that a person's never too old for stories. Man and boy, girl and woman, never too old. We live for them. They are what make up this very thing we're talking about. That's a nice little meta level to what's going on here, where you and I are talking about a book. It's a big story. And this book, in particular, is all about stories. And it has the characters within the story acknowledging the value of stories and how they are important to life. Without them, the world would just be a darker place. And we hunger for those stories. And we see characters within this book hunger for stories. We see Roland hunger for stories of his father because he doesn't know much about his own father, even though he, you know, he grew up at his, at his feet. But he doesn't know about his exploits. He doesn't know about what makes him have the reputation he has. I think it's great that it, stories themselves are acknowledged in this meta way as well. Nothing like King justifying his career, right? Yeah. Not that he really needs to at this point. So this section ends with Roland hypnotizing Little Bill, who's not to be confused with his father, Plain Bill, <laughs> or his grandfather, Old Bill. And actually, it's not Little Bill, is it? It's, it's Younger Bill, I think. I think. There's Younger Bill, Bill, and Older Bill. Little Bill being the cartoon series of Bill Cosby that Bill Cosby did for Nickelodeon. Jay doesn't know that because he doesn't have kids like I do, so he doesn't have any idea who Little Bill is. Nope. Roland talks to young Bill and gets his story about what happened. When he hypnotizes him, he learns a little bit about what young Bill saw when the skin man attacked, how he started to see him transform, and most importantly, how he saw a blue tattoo on his ankle. And Roland's like, haha, we're going to be able to find the skin man this way. And after he's done hypnotizing young Bill, he's trying to cheer Bill up and say, hey, why don't we play some card game. We can play poker, if you know. And he's like, no, I want to hear a story. You had mentioned a, a story earlier called The Wind Through the Keyhole. Tell me that story. And so this section ends, like the previous section ended, with Roland starting a Once Upon a Time and then moving into another story. So it comes full circle in this chapter where we start with a story and we end with the beginning of a story again. Exactly. And I think with all of Roland's interaction with young Bill, who is very young. Roland guesses he's about 10 years old. So he's even younger than Jake was when Roland first encountered him at the way station. Roland himself is still only 14 or 15 years old at this point. So he's not even that much older than young Bill. But Roland has been through a lot of stuff at this point. He's certainly a much more mature person than young Bill is. And Roland's also a gunslinger and, and all that. But a lot of Roland's childhood still kind of lingers, and I think it comes out or it becomes more evident as a reflection of his interactions with the much younger young Bill. Yes. When he's trying to comfort him, when he's buying him candy and things like that. But it, it comes out in other ways, like in his discussions with Jamie and like how there are certain things that they both know or don't know about sex, or they're not respected by their elders even though they have positions of great authority in society as gunslingers, 
they're still like young kids. They're teenagers with guns on their hips. So when the oldest badass in town suddenly has to have deference for a teenager just because he has the title of gunslinger, it's a little bit hard for them to swallow at first. And we know that Roland is like the baddest of badasses, so you better not really challenge him. But they don't know that yet. So everybody's got to do a little bit of posturing. It's an odd movement from the last book. And we talked a lot about Roland's childhood in that and how he seemed to have become a man. First, he loses his virginity at the beginning of that story with a whore outside of town after he bests court. And then he has his first real romantic engagement with Susan Delgado. From a sexuality standpoint, he's become a man in that way. But furthermore, he's become a man because he's faced down his first real threat, the big coffin hunters. He's completed the mission that his father's asked him to do. He's brought back the wizard's glass. He's done all these things that really we had seen as a rite of manhood for him almost. And the book ends with Roland sort of saying, hey, I had this vision of the tower. That's the most important thing in my life. We need to do this. And you get the sense, okay, he's a man now. He's got a mission. He knows what he's going to do. And we get into this book and all of a sudden that backtrack, instead of going for the tower, his father, who's an authority figure, says, hey, wait a minute, I'm sending you off on this side trip. And I'm not even sending you with your friends. I'm sending you with somebody different. Mm -hmm. And then when they get to town, as you mentioned, there's all these authority figures who are like, oh, well, we know who you are, but really, shouldn't they have sent somebody else? I think the sheriff at first is like, oh, I was expecting your father to come, not you. And they get there and no one really knows how to treat them. Even the valet and the engineer on the train that you mentioned before. Yeah. You guys should beware because those women are going to eat you. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're getting into. Just sort of pass that by and remember what you're supposed to do. Get us help because we can't sit out here by our own. Everyone's seeming to question their abilities throughout this. And so we know what Roland's done in the way it's written. It seems like Roland's taken a couple steps back. Yeah. And I think that that's actually kind of maybe an accurate portrayal by King here. The way I see it is that Roland grew by leaps and bounds as a human being through his experience in Magus. But when he returned home, he suddenly returned to the place where he was a child. Yep. And so everybody around him, up to the point where he murdered his own mother, I mean, his mother was there, his father was there, his teachers were there, his childhood friends were there. Basically, Roland, like the rest of us, are held in place developmentally by those who know us best. If somebody knows us from when we were five years old, they're always going to know us, at least in part, as that five-year-old version of ourselves. It's the people who have met us after we're 20 years older than that or 50 years older than that, that they have a different perspective on us. Now, obviously, if you grow up and spend all the years between five and 50 with somebody, they'll have a complete picture of you, but they still have a little bit of that anchoring to your youth that you might unconsciously defer to when you're with them. Roland does all of these things in Magus, has his experience with the wizard's glass, gets his obsession for the tower, and then goes home to mom and dad. And it's not surprising that he regresses a little bit to maybe a younger, less mature version of himself, at least temporarily. And even if not regresses, nobody sees the growth in him, like you mentioned. So he doesn't necessarily need to regress. And we're also still reminded that while he might not have regressed, there are still things he doesn't know. So sure, he may have slept with Susan Delgado, but he still doesn't know what a dildo is. He still doesn't know what prostitutes do. He doesn't have any concept of that. And, you know, Jamie knows some of this and he's like, is Roland pulling my leg? And then he realizes, no, 
Roland doesn't know that either. So it's all sorts of things. And there's still references to toys and candy and just sort of it's sprinkled throughout. And I think King's doing a good job here of reminding us that Roland is still just a child. And we should not forget that, that we shouldn't make these assumptions about who he is. And it might serve him well. We don't know where this story is going, but it served him well at the beginning of Wizard and Glass when the big coffin hunters did not respect them enough and did not see them as formidable opponents when in fact they were. Yeah. When they arrived in Magus, they were purposefully trying to keep a low profile. They hoped to not be recognized for what they truly were and hid their revolvers and, and all that. Here, they're strolling into town as gunslingers, as the authority figure, as the expert, and they're struggling against the expectations that people have for, of them in the opposite direction. Right. But speaking of how King is doing such a great job of making us feel like Roland is perhaps being held back a little bit by the people around him, we do also get this great moment between Roland and Stephen DeShane when his father thinks and tells Roland that he's a fine son. Mm. And he goes on to say, I may never have told you that, but it's true. I hold nothing against you. In that, he's referring to that Roland killed his own mother and his father's wife, obviously. I think it's really nice that Roland hears this from his father, but I wonder if King would have included this line or even this sentiment when he himself was a younger author, mm. all the way back when he wrote book four. Because as King mentions in his foreword, that a lot of years in his life passed between the moment when Roland crawls out of the whore's bed and to the moment when he leaves Gilead again to go for the wind through the keyhole story. So King has matured a lot. King has raised all of his children. They're all adults at this point. Some of them are successful writers themselves. As King pointed out this week on Twitter when he said, both my sons are on the New York Times bestseller list. Very proud of his sons. He's very proud of his daughter as well, but she's not writing like his sons are. Right. So I think King is in a different place in his life and thinking about how he relates to his children. And I'm curious if you think that King would have bothered to write this or even if it would have occurred to him to write this if he had written this book 20 years ago. I suspect no. Right. I think it's different when you're a father and you probably see your offspring grow up, you see them in a different light. And at one point, they're children, but then when they grow up, they're not children anymore. And it's important to continue to tell them that I still respect you and I still love you and I still, I'm happy what has happened to you and what's become of you. Mm -hmm. And it might be different when you're older to do that than it is when you're younger. So yeah, it might be something that he's dwelled on a little bit more. Yeah. Even the author is maturing as we go through these books. So Sean, one of the things that kind of, um, it occurred to me, I suppose, as we were reading through this book, because this is my first time through this, that King has managed to add another genre to the panoply of genres that uh, make up the Dark Tower. And we now have a murder mystery on our hands. It's, it's fantastic, isn't it? I didn't notice that until yeah. you pointed it out, but it's very much a murder mystery. And it's like so much fun for that reason. I don't know who the skin man's secret identity is. In some ways, there's some classic horror stuff in here, like the Dr. Jekyll type thing going on, or like werewolf story. And even maybe the werewolf doesn't even know that he's a werewolf. And it also just comes down to like, 
is Sherlock Holmes going to solve the mystery before the next, you know, before the murderer strikes again? And it's kind of fun. Since this whole story sort of began on a train ride, it made me wonder, like, maybe an alternate title to this book could have been Murder on the Smartoot. <laughs> and as you noted, gunslingers tend to have mustaches, so Roland yeah. could be the Hercule Poirot of this story. Exactly. <laughs> be a fastidious little gunslinger. It's interesting because we've mentioned before about how Roland's title is a gunslinger. And yet he is continually put in positions where his guns aren't going to be able to solve the problem. Yeah. Obviously, there's probably going to be a point if the skin man is a werewolf when a silver bullet might solve the problem. But at this point, it's not about the guns. There's actual thinking to do. There's actual deduction to happen. We need to put all the clues together. We need to figure this out. And he's got, just like in any good police procedural murder she wrote, Matlock type of situation, you've got the fat, jolly town sheriff who's going to help along, but he's sort of a little bumbling. And meanwhile, the outsider detective is going to figure it out and put all the pieces together. So That's right. And I think there's already a clue that Roland started to overlook when he mentions the blue tattoo. He's like, oh, I've got it. Yeah. Right before he comes out of his hypnosis, young Bill says, and the white mark too. And Roland just sort of totally skips over that. I haven't read ahead, so I don't know, but I'm thinking the white mark might be important. Right. It's sort of fun to know, not know who, who could possibly be the skin man. There's only a certain amount of characters we've been introduced to so far. Will we meet others? Will there be somebody else? It's the stunt cast character, I, I, I would assume. Sure. Unless they pull off the mask like a Scooby-Doo episode. The meddling kids get them every time. It's old man Crothers. It always is. Would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling gunslingers. King obviously loves playing with this. And I have a feeling, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like the wind through the keyhole is going to be a children's book again, perhaps. We joked before about how that there could be a possibility of the Throcken and the Dragon being a children's book. But I don't know what kind of story the wind through the keyhole, this story within the story is going to be. But we might get another type of genre even within this story since we've got multiple story layers. Right. There's enough detail already in the book that this story of the wind through the keyhole is something that is commonly known in Gilead, at least. Yes. It's like a, a familiar fairy tale. Yep. So, and the reason I know that is I've read enough ahead to know that the place where that story takes place is the endless forest. Mm. And earlier in this section of the book, Jamie, when they are looking at the bear tracks, they say, even in the endless forest, there wouldn't be a bear that big. So, he's like, even subconsciously already, and this is, of course, King being very crafty and weaving in details of the story ahead of time, but he's unconsciously connecting what they're observing in that moment in the real world to a fairy tale that both he and Roland are familiar with. Right. Jay, you had mentioned that wind seems to be a motif throughout this book. Absolutely, yeah. You know, we started getting it in the previous chapter with the Stark Blast and how how the concern of the wind was and how they needed to buckle down from the wind and make sure that they had battened down to all the hatches. And the book is obviously called The Wind Through the Keyhole. It seems to come through even more in this section. Yeah, it's ever-present. We're introduced to multiple words that basically mean wind, like simoom and stark blast. And the wind plows through Stephen's study, the, the study that you mentioned earlier with unread books in it. And 
it blows through the Stark Blast shelter to the point where our heroes are not sure if their makeshift doorways and window coverings will hold and it might kill them because it's so cold and windy out there. And when they're on the train going through the desert, there's wind that blows the the hard pan across the desert and that's what derails the train. So the wind just keeps coming back in multiple forms and in multiple levels of danger or threat, but it's always there. And as you're reading through any part of the story, at some point there will be a line about what the wind is doing at that moment. It's very clear that King wants us to be aware of the wind and that it's almost like a character off to the side perhaps, but it's always there it's always adding itself to the atmosphere. And would you say it has any specific purpose? Generally, when we think of wind, sometimes it can be like the breath of life. But here, it doesn't seem like that. It seems more that wind is a dangerous motif as opposed to sort of inspiration or the breath of life and some of the positive things that go along with wind. Here, the wind seems destructive in some ways, menacing, mm-hmm. something that can tear things apart as opposed to bring things together. And if nothing else, I'd, I'd say it, because of its consistent presence, it's almost like if there were a soundtrack to the story, I think the wind would almost be like the drum beat, like the backbeat mm. of what's going on. It would just be like the rhythm, the rhythm of the story. Sometimes that rhythm is hectic and frantic. It, it's when the Stark Blast is coming through and you got to batten down the hatches, otherwise you're going to freeze to death in, in seconds, just like the birds that fall out of the sky. But other times it's just slow and steady and it's enough to just scrape enough of the hard pan off of the desert floor to derail a train. Yep. That's a lot of destructive power, but that slow, steady drumbeat eventually gets you there. Yeah, I don't think that this is a healing wind or a, a life-giving wind. I think this is a dangerous wind and a threatening wind. And it adds to the, if we're thinking of this as a, a murder mystery but with a tinge of horror of the classic werewolf story underneath, it does give that sense of a howling wind, uh, whether a Halloween type of situation where things are dark and gloomy and the wind's blowing in the background and out of nowhere there's this skin man that attacks. Silhouette of the skin man in front of the full moon, that kind of thing. Yeah, very evocative. We may be ready for fun stuff, Jay. Yeah, I think we are. I'm going to jump just because we were talking about the skin man. This is another very evocative phrase for me. It brought to mind the stuffy guys. I think stuffy guys are a much better name than scarecrow for just sort of being evocative. And I love yeah. this idea of skin man as a type of werewolf shape changer that this man who takes on the additional skin. And as you know, I'm also always a fan of hyphens in between, <laughs> in, in between words to describe a character. So I like skin hyphen man. That's right. It it leads you to believe that the skin man was perhaps bitten by a radioactive skin. Exactly. And then became friendly neighborhood skin man. He has all the proportional strength of a skin and all the powers of a skin. <laughs> what kind of skin? Like a water skin? Snake skin? Just skin. Skin? Just a little bit of skin? No, 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 skin man. Oh, that's Batman. Skin man, skin man, does whatever a skin can. There you go. Spins a skin any size. Spins his epidermis any size. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely fun stuff. 
I was just talking about this a moment ago about the name of the endless forest. The reason why I bring this up now is kind of when Jamie is so kind of taken aback by how big these bear footprints are, and he says, no bigger bear, not even in the endless forest. It made me, of course, think of Shardik. Shardik isn't in the endless forest. Shardik is a real thing, but he's described as being gigantic. In all the illustrations in book three, Shardik is massive. He's like the size of a tree. Yeah. I'm pretty sure his footprint would be way bigger than what they found in this farmer's home. Right. But that kind of made me wonder, like, would they have known about Shardik? When we encountered Shardik for the first time, that's when we learned about the guardians of the beams and the symbols that they represent. But I don't know that Roland or maybe even just gunslingers in general would have been aware of them being actual physical things that they would really exist in the world and that you could actually find one and interact with it in some way, whether it's defending yourself against its attack. But do you think they knew it was real? I assume they've always thought that they were metaphors and that Roland is just as surprised as encountering him as Eddie and Suzanne are when they, when they encounter it. Yeah. But he's just so practical about it. He's like, well, it's clearly trying to kill us. So shoot its, shoot its head off. Nothing surprises Roland. Well, of course. Shardik, duh. So I mentioned earlier that Stephen has said, I'm sending you with Jamie to Curry. You know, Roland's a little disappointed because I, I think he thought he'd hang out with Cuthbert and Elaine again. And his father says, no, I'm not sending you with Laughing Boy and Thudfoot. <laughs> <laughs> Which are awesome nicknames. <laughs> awesome nicknames, right? They sound like a, a bad 70s TV show. <laughs> Laughing Boy and Thudfoot. <laughs> BJ and the Bear. That's right. Starsky and Hutch, Laughing Boy and Thudfoot. And I just thought that those were great nicknames. And I wonder if Steven has nicknames for all of Roland's friends. He probably does. And if they're that great. He doesn't give Jamie a, a nickname, does he? No. So I wonder if he w was trying to tread carefully because we're told that Jamie... So he does call him Jamie the Red Hand, doesn't he? That almost feels like... Like everybody kind of calls him that. It's not his nickname like behind their back, like Laughing Boy and Thudfoot. Right. Or even to their face. I mean, I could totally see Stephen DeShane saying, oh boy, here comes Laughing Boy and Thudfoot again. So Jamie, the red-handed, it seems like that is a discussion of a birthmark that Jamie has. I actually did a little bit of research and in the previous book, when they meet the man in black in the green palace, he actually mentions Jamie and he says, oh, Jamie DeCurry your friend with the birthmark. And so I think the red hand refers to a birthmark that Jamie has on his hand. Um, what's interesting is in the comic book series, I think they move that birthmark from his hand to his face to distinguish Jamie. Yeah, and I must have missed that detail about Jamie having a birthmark at all. Because when I first read this, and Roland makes the comparison, he's like, it's not as red as Jamie's hand or something like that. It made me just picture that Jamie's birthmark is it encompasses his entire hand and perhaps part of his forearm to the point where it looks like he's maybe wearing a glove mm. or that he had just dipped his hand in like red paint or something. And maybe that is the case. Maybe that's what Stephen King had in mind. And that would make for a pretty startling or distinctive appearance to have your hand to be just like bright red color. 
especially if you're a gunslinger, you know, so every time you, your hand dips down to, to your revolver, it's this red hand that's like moving almost too fast to see. I would think that if that's the case, or if, you know, if it's just like something that's like just part of his, one of his fingers and the back of his hand or something much smaller than his whole hand would be. If he has this nickname, I think everybody probably calls him Jamie the Red Hand. It brings up a fact that King really does not give us too much characterization of Jamie here. And that could be just because we haven't spent as much time with him as we did with Cuthbert and Elaine. But we got Mm -hmm. a pretty good feel for those two characters. And what's funny about Stephen calling them Laughing Boy and Thudfoot is because we can immediately see why they would be called Laughing Boy and Thudfoot. We know enough about their characterization to be like, oh yeah, Cuthbert's always laughing at everything. And Jamie's not that way. In fact, at one point, I think he curls his lip up slightly and Roland says, oh yeah, that's just like if Cuthbert was rolling in the aisles, like that's as much. Yep. So we don't know a lot about Jamie. We do get this red hand mentioned that just gets glossed over. But what's very interesting is Jamie's been mentioned a ton of times in the previous book, and I have almost no recollection of it. I was looking through the Stephen King Dark Tower Complete Concordance to look up some stuff about Jamie, and he's mentioned in books one and three and four multiple times. He's just not left distinctive enough impression on us to know anything more about him. You know, even his birthmark is talked about. Um, one thing that is interesting that's that I did not notice, and I probably should have because this is the type of Picayune stuff that I <laughs> I normally find, is that Stephen King actually spells decurry in multiple ways throughout the books, uh, sometimes with the D capitalized, sometimes with it not, and sometimes with a space between the D-E and the curry. Actually, when I would look back in book four, I noticed that he spelled it slightly differently within pages of each other in book four. So, uh-huh. yeah, so fun stuff about Jamie DeCurry. Maybe we'll see more of him before this book ends. Yeah, I certainly hope that this is our opportunity to learn more about him. I'm sure he's in his own way just as interesting as Cuthbert and, uh, and Elaine are. I thought you were going to say just as interesting as Laughing Boy and Thudfoot. Yeah, left money on the table with that one. One of the things that I, I want to talk about in fun stuff is this notion of old expressions, especially as we encounter one of them in this book, that the expression itself has long outlived any true understanding of its original meaning. But somehow, the meaning itself, or perhaps the idea behind the expression, remains. It's sort of like the empty shell is still there, but what was once inside it is gone, and nobody remembers what was in there. And the expression that I'm talking about here is when somebody says that one is as solid as a dromedary. And I had to look up what a dromedary is, and apparently it's an Arabian camel. So when the expression clearly meant at some point that you're as solid or you're as reliable as an Arabian camel. Great. Okay. I guess camels in this part of the world or perhaps a, another part of mid-world where camels were more common or something or an animal like a camel is common, they were just a reliable beast of burden. Great. But by the time we get to this book and somebody says she's as solid as a dromedary, nobody remembers what that means. Yep. But the expression is still passed on. The expression is still used. And it just means that you're just really reliable, but we don't know what the heck a dromedary is, and we don't know why that's the paragon of solidity or reliability, but there's the expression. So I just thought that was a fascinating examination of how language works and how culture works around language. 
I couldn't think of another like real world analog to that, but I'm sure there are many. There are. There's an interesting piece where how our phones click when we take a picture, even though there's no reason for them to click. Yeah. There's actually a word for how they've put these sounds in that don't really have any reason to exist because the film's not advancing because they're all digital now, but people are used to that click. And even referring to that thing as a phone is probably silly because all it is is a handheld computer that has an app on it that allows you to make calls. Mm-hmm. And that rings when there's really no bell to make it ring. Like all these things that sort of live on in our culture that have no longer have that purpose. And it's like that with words too. Can I think of any off the top of my head? No, but I know that there's phrases like that. It's interesting when you use that phrase and somebody calls you on it and you have to think about it. Like, oh yeah, why do we say that? Mm -hmm. It's lost in the mists of time. Or at least we can just learn from the context what an expression means without ever really thinking about what was the genesis of that expression. Right. Our vocabulary can be full of idioms and things like that, that we don't ever really think about. We never consider their etymology. We just use them. And I I find that fascinating. Yeah. And that's a good example there. Another one that I had on the list was when young Bill was crying, uh, it's described as his eyes were red and his cheeks wet. And I just wondered if this was a really loose Star Trek The Next Generation reference, specifically to the episode Darmok, which any of you listeners out there, and I assume that there are quite a few of you, if you like The Dark Tower, you probably like Star Trek. The Darmok episode was one of the better episodes of the entire series, and it's one of my favorites. There's an alien species who speaks in metaphor, and some of the lines that they use are they sound like that. They're like, his eyes red, his cheeks wet. So this made me think of, of that episode of Star Trek. There's a line that I looked up that was, you know, Zinda, his face black, his eyes red. I seriously doubt that King was thinking of this when he wrote that sentence, but who knows? It was fun for me. Maybe like she's as solid as a dromedary, he's just picked it up and is using it without remembering where it started from. That's right. Nice uh, callback there, Sean. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover book 4.5 of The Dark Tower, The Wind Through the Keyhole, The Wind Through the Keyhole section. Oh, man. I was going to say the self-titled Wind Through the Keyhole section, but... <laughs> for Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.